0: I really love the music that our praise team gets to do, and I caught myself kinda doing one of these little numbers on the way down from the stairs the other day, because it was one of those songs that I went away with, and I just had it in my spirit. It gets in your bones, and that's what we wanna carry with us through the week are these things. Some people, I know you've seen the memes, some of you, about how, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I write contemporary praise courses. I write contemporary praise courses. I write contemporary (laughs) praise courses. And so we get teased a lot about the repetition, but all you have to do is look at some of the songs. You know, his mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. Hey, we're not the first to have invented that, okay? But I'm glad that we have that kind of attitude so that something can strike us at the soul level. I caught myself in a restaurant the other day, in fact, and that sort of thing was happening because it happened to come on a really good song, and it's the kind of song that you just kind of have to move. You know, you get this wayward out-of-body experience where your feet are doing things because your brain is telling them to and you're going you're in public don't do that and you you know you feel like man you just got to move to this music oh my goodness and i i really wanted to and i turned to the guy next to me who was waiting and i could tell he wanted to (laughs) and i said man you can't hear that song without feeling like you just got to kind of do a little bit of that don't you he goes yeah (laughs) so we kind of high-fived ourselves on the way out the door that's what i feel like sometimes when i've been in the presence of god with god's people and we've been able to lift up praises to him it transforms everything about us and i pray that we'll be able to carry some of that with us throughout this week as well i found this story that i want to introduce our topic today as we're still in the book of mark mark chapter 8 because it helps crystallize a point jesus was trying to make to his disciples and because many of us are his disciples it kind of rubs off on us too, at least I hope. And because I had that wonderful privilege several years ago to go to Zimbabwe and do some teaching, and then also got a chance to go to a game preserve because my brother-in-law had to hook up. He knew a guy. And so we got to go on a safari, and we got to see some really cool animals in the wild, and I got to walk with a couple of nine-month-old lions in the bush. How many of you can put that on your resume? Got- Chase! <laughs> well, I ran some of the time. But this is a, a true tale written by another pastor, and, and I wish I knew his name, but it came up on an illustration site, and it cut off the name of the contributor. So if you're out there and you hear this, I wanted to give you a citation, but I don't know who you are. Anyway, it's a tale of two safari guides. He visited Africa, and this resonated with me. He says, twice, I have visited heaven, or close to it the Masai Mara, perhaps the greatest wildlife preserved in the world. The Maasai Mara is part of the vast grassland that stretches over the fertile plains of East Africa. And here there are, and check out this number of animals, elephant, Cheetah, gazelle, wildebeest, water buffalo, giraffe, crocodile, rhinoceros, hippopotamus, and hundreds of other furry or scaly, tusked or horned, fleet-footed or slithering, flying or crawling, sun-loving or night-stalking creatures that roam and soar and wade and burrow without fear of man. It sounds like a little bit of heaven, doesn't it? Like the new heaven and the new earth, maybe? Except you won't get eaten by a hippopotamus in the new heaven. He says, but the guides I had for the two trips could not have been more different from one another. The first guide, whose name was Stephen, made the trip a thing of joy and wonder and endless surprise. (laughs) The second guide, whose name was William, almost ruined the trip completely. The difference was one thing. Stephen paid attention. William didn't. Stephen had good eyes. William didn't. I don't mean the power and clarity of the organ of sight. I mean Stephen looked at the right thing at the right time with the right focus. And William just didn't. Stephen was a Maasai man in his early 20s who grew up just a few miles from the very ground we were crossing together, and the land was in his blood. Every hillock and grove and bend of the river, he knew in his bones the personal histories of many of the animals we had gone to see. He had an intuition for finding animals that at least to a suburban living white guy like me who thinks a squirrel is a major animal sighting, seemed almost supernatural. He would stop and gaze at something two kilometers, or kilometers if you're from the UK, away in the distance. And it looked to me more like just grass and acacia. But then he would drive toward it slowly. And maybe 300 yards away, I would finally see what he saw. Maybe it was a mother rhino and its baby grazing in scrub brush or even a pride of lions sleeping beneath a tree, or a pair of cheetahs sunning themselves on the shelf of a rock. Now, William was a Comba man in his mid-50s who grew up in Nairobi. And the reason I say that is because it was like a city slicker. That would be like me going to visit my cousins on the ranch and saying, oh, he's from Phoenix. (laughs) So he grew up in Nairobi and he couldn't see for looking but he wasn't looking anyhow. He spent most of his time chatting it up with his buddies on his CB, and he just followed the crowd of other guides and tourists around wherever they might go. Wherever the other vehicles congested, that's where he went. We saw animals, yeah, but we saw them from within a swarm of dozens or maybe a hundred other tourists who were trying to look at the same thing, they were all jockeying for positions. One time we were traveling alone away from the pack fairly quickly down this dirt road and we were away from the pack and a herd of elephants were grazing at the roadside just a few feet away and William was going to sail right past them and we were all screaming, William, elephants! And he goes, huh, where? I tell you, this pastor says, about Stephen and William to tell you this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Pay attention. You could miss it entirely if you choose to look at the wrong things. And that's what Jesus is starting to show us about this gradual sight as we look at Mark 8. Turn to that if you've got it. Starting at verse 22, we're going to read that passage, and then we've got some wonderful pearls of wisdom that uh, will jump out at us almost like that herd of elephants but not quite as dangerous. Mark 8, 22 through 26. When they had arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And then, spitting on the man's eyes, ew, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? And the man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. And then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. And his sight was completely restored, and he could see everything. Jesus said to him, don't go back into the village on your way home. That's our passage, and we're gonna ask God to reveal things to us so we can see the kingdom more clearly as well. Here's some things that we've already seen, and they're important because we know that context helps us understand more clearly what it is Jesus wants us to see, and as we saw last time in sort of the fortune cookie kind of parable, you have to crack things open and look in it to find the real message, and then he wants you to chew on it longer after you have been able to hear it, and he's continuing to do that for us. We have seen that Jesus works any way he chooses to work. He's not limited. His power cannot be reduced to a formula so that people can't say, Oh, well, if you do this and if you have the olive oil and if you apply it right here in the form of a cross, and if you pray this specific prayer, then you're bound to get specific results. We can't reduce it to that. Also miracles that we see in the new Testament, particularly in the book of Mark, they may be similar to one another, but the methods may differ. There's touch, there's no touch, there's spit, there's no spit. On occasion, there was spit that turned into mud, and sometimes it was just spit directly applied. There's in-person, there's at a distance, you name it. Jesus used just about every conceivable option available to him in terms of being able to do these miracles. Uh, He meets each person's need. I love this one. He meets everybody's need very personally. He didn't have some form letter that he handed you and said, Show up at my office on Wednesday because I have open hours. He knew everybody's need very personally and he approached them that way and met that need specifically. Rich young ruler, he knew that the one thing he was grasping a hold of and hanging on tightly, too tightly, were his riches. And so he said, Yeah, you still lack one thing. Just sell everything you've got and give to the poor and then you can inherit the kingdom. And the guy went away sad. He didn't say that to everybody, that wasn't a prescription. But he knew that that was that man's need. Zacchaeus, up a tree. We were talking about this in small group just the other day. He looks up, hey, you. Yeah, tax collector guy. Come on down from there. I'm going to your house. Let's have supper. Jesus knew specifically what each person needed at that moment in their life so that he can introduce them to the kingdom. And those who were willing, and those who paid attention, and those who looked at the right things found that kind of freedom through being a part of the kingdom of God. Also, we see that each miracle is teaching some sort of spiritual truth or spiritual lesson as well. They weren't done just for miracle's sakes. They were there as teaching objects as well. And they were very powerful objects because obviously people were still talking about them long after they happened. For example, we talked about connecting the feeding of the 5,000 that was in one area, the Jewish area, with the feeding of the 4,000 that was a part of feeding in the Gentile area. And that was helping us connect the dots to show that Jesus was fulfilling everything that had been predicted ahead of time and that he was going to present this good gospel but to the Jews first, the chosen ones, the ones who had access to all this information so that they could have made the right choice but then Many of those chose to reject it. And that wasn't gonna stop him from spreading the gospel because then he was still gonna connect to the promise of Abraham. That through Abraham's descendants, he would bless all the nations of the world. So he was gonna expand that gospel to the Gentiles as well. So we continue to see all these lessons growing out of these miracles as well. So that's some good background info to help us move forward as we continue to see what he's teaching us today in this specific kind of miracle. What sets this one apart? Mostly the fact that it took place gradually. Almost every other miracle we read about in Jesus. It said, and immediately the man got up, picked up his mat, and walked away in front of everybody. And they praised God and gave glory to him because they'd never seen anything like that before. That was very similar to the other kinds of miracles that we read about. But in this case, he said, yeah, I kind of see some stuff, but it's not clear yet. Now, what about the context for this? Aha, what did we just look at when he was talking to some people? They were demanding a sign. It was those Pharisees, those Pharisees who came trying to demand another sign. Said, just show us a sign from heaven to prove that you have the authority to do the things you're doing. And what did Jesus tell them? No sign for you. No, you don't need another sign. I've given you so many signs. If you had been around this place, you've seen them. You've heard about them. They've been buzzing about it. And all that you've got now is the sign of Jonah, which is a foreshadowing to his death, burial, and resurrection. In there for three days, raises again. I like what Mark was saying even after that. I've come to that conclusion too. I think Jonah was actually dead. Dead, dead, dead. Not just alive inside a fish, but that was why it connected so well. So I appreciate your continuing to Talk with me about that one, Mark. Now, we'll ask him when we get there, but then Mark and I, when he says, yeah, he was dead, Mark and I will high-five each other. Yes, I knew it. Well, the miracle was not done in a crowd. Notice that as we observe this. Jesus did not say, oh, good, yes, another chance to do a great miracle. You're healed, you can see again. He actually took the guy by the hand and led him out of the village, away from the crowd, before he performed this particular healing. Why was that? Could it be? perhaps, that some of those Pharisees were hanging around and he had just promised them before, I'm not gonna give you another sign. And so he doesn't. He takes this guy around the corner and does something different for him specifically because he was true to his word and he wasn't gonna give them yet another reason to try to just discredit them, to discredit him because that's what they were trying to do. That also may be why he told them, uh, don't go back through the village he had come from his home to the village, which is where he met Jesus, but he didn't live in the village. He lived somewhere else. So that may be why Jesus told him, don't go back through the village again. This is not for them to see. You just go straight home now. I kind of think there's good possibility for that. And think about this. Bethsaida, where this was taking place, they had already seen a ton of miracles already. We can see that. That's why in Matthew 11, it was giving some of those woes. He says, woe to you, couple of cities, and Bethsaida... Because if the miracles that were performed in you, Bethsaida, were performed in Tyre and Sidon, those people would have repented a long time ago. So had they had signs available to them? Well, according to Matthew, yeah. A whole bunch of them. So let me ask you, this is something that as we start trying to allow the Holy Spirit to point the fingers back into our lives personally, what kind of evidence have we already received? Before we demand more evidence about the identity or mission of Christ or to know whether he's actually doing something or not in our lives, have we already seen abundant evidence? And shouldn't we look back to that and recall that as we're praying and saying, God, I know you've done all this, so I know you can handle this one too. And he does. Notice too that he approaches this man's need by getting up close and personal. This connects in similarity to other kinds of healings that we have seen. And sometimes he's willing to wade right into our mess with us because he wants to touch us even at our messiest place. And he does so in this guy's need as well. I think that's a lesson for us disciples today, modern disciples. If we're going to help others see Christ more clearly because that's what disciples do, they make other disciples, which means people have to see and hear from us about what Jesus does and who he does it for, Otherwise, if they don't hear it from us, how are they going to get that? So that's a lesson. If we're going to help them see Christ, we need to get up close enough to them so that we really know their need. I mean, up close and personal. That means, now this is where it gets difficult. That means we have to see past our differences and we have to see their need as being more important than our prejudice. Man, that's tough. I've had prejudices, and I have not wanted to do certain things that God was asking me to do. And I felt like his Holy Spirit was going, <laughs> pushing me in the direction of that knee because I had no choice, and I was the only one left to do it. But he gave me the strength to do that, and he helped me look past those prejudices. Like dealing with a friend of mine that I was just telling my family about that we knew back in Ann Arbor years ago, Marvin. He had been starting to write fake prescriptions for himself, and he was really strongly addicted, just a rough spot. Been to jail once, probably going to go to jail again. We went over to try to help him, and he was just stoned out of his mind, sitting on a couch, just a complete zombie. His family was packing up. His wife and kids were packing up because they were going to leave him because they couldn't live like that any longer. And so to get into that life personally, up close, and deal with people's mess that way, it's hard. It's not pleasant. It's not something that I enjoyed doing. But we had to do it. Somebody had to do it. And so we offered to get him help, to take him to rehab, There were other things that took place. He did not turn around immediately. I am happy to say that one had a much better ending years later because he had enough people who continued to come into his life and help pull him out of the mire until he finally made the choice for himself to say, I caused this. I'm gonna stop blaming other people. I caused this. So here's the thing. Are we willing to wade into other people's messes sometimes? Knowing that they're not living in a way that's pleasing to God and that it's maybe messy and it's difficult to be around them. Can we get to know them enough to try to pour in some truth to their life as long as they're willing to receive that truth? I think that's a part of our calling. That's why I think one-on-one meetings and small groups are fantastic for that. There's a whole lot of people out there that they would not come into this subculture to a Sunday morning meeting. To them, it would be like going to Sweden. I mean, it's a total different culture and all they would hear is they wouldn't hear what we're singing because it doesn't resonate with them. They need to find out first who we are and what we stand for, and our life becomes the message that matches what our words are saying. And when we've been in their life uh, long enough for them to see that, and maybe they're starting to come to a small group Bible study, maybe they're studying with us one on one, then they say, "Okay, I'm ready to take that scary step. I'm willing to go to a ch- uh, to a ch- ch- I have a hard time saying it to church. I'll give it a shot." And we see that happening when people are willing to get into their lives up close and personal. Well, unlike another healing, we're gonna look at another observation here. This man was not born blind, I believe. How do we know that? Look at verse 24. Jesus asked the man if he can see anything. How does he respond? Well, a little bit, but they kinda look like tree beard. They kinda look like trees walking around. I wonder if that's where, what's his name got there? I don't know. And Jesus asked the man, can you see? And he says, no, how would he know that? How would he know what a human looks like compared to a tree if he had perhaps had previous sight? Now maybe he had felt humans and trees and so he had an idea, but I kind of suspect that he had not been born blind like some of the ones that we fought, saw before, like in John 9 where uh, the man that was born blind and people were saying, who sinned that caused this blindness? So here's another lesson that grows from this gradual sight. Some people who really need the gospel are not completely in the dark i remember that with our friend mike kramer he had grown up in a lutheran church he said it was a social gathering more than a religious experience but people went and i heard scriptures as i was growing up i had a a modicum of truth poured into my life but it, it wasn't a real personal connection with the living god it was just going to church but he had something there, so he wasn't completely in the dark. So maybe he was starting to see something walking around, but they were like trees. And then when he really saw it in the book of Mark and our study in a small group in the Fogarty house, as a matter of fact, then he was praying one time at the end of one of our sessions, and he accepted Christ. Blew us away. That was the one when I said, no, you can't do that yet. You have to come to church on Sunday. <laughs> we let him go ahead and say the prayer. But it blew us away, and so sometimes people are not in the dark, but we need to find where they are in that process and then just keep adding to that, you know? Like Jesus has said to that one guy, you're closer to the kingdom than you even know. Some people are closer to that site, but they still need a permanent and really clear healing, a full healing, so they can really grasp, oh, Jesus is who he claims to be. He was predicted by the prophets. He died a sinless death. He was in the tomb for three days. He rose again. He conquered death. He's coming back again. I get it. He is who he claimed to be. Yes, I want to serve that Jesus and not the one that I've been overlaying my own prejudices onto his life and turning him into something and creating him in my image instead of the other way around. Some of us, I think, even though we've been walking with Christ for a long time, we still get what I could call spiritual cataracts that little blind spots that we have in our character or in our personality and we just we're not really aware that they're there and the Holy Spirit can keep working on that that's why we've got this transformation process that lasts a lifetime I'm glad I'm glad God's patient with me because boy he speaks the language of two by four sometimes my mom had cataracts when she was still driving she's in heaven now but when I flew out to Arizona for a few days to check on her, she was still driving at that time and she drove me across town. We had dinner with friends and she was going back down a road that she'd driven on for thousands of times. It was no big deal, it was a nice clear night. And I could see that she was getting kind of close in the right lane. There was nobody to her left but there were some orange cones blocking some of that lane because they were getting ready to do work there. And she was getting closer and closer and I was looking to see if she saw that and she would not give any indication that she had. And I said, "Mom." are you aware of those orange cones up ahead? She goes, oh, really? There are orange cones up ahead? (laughs) 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 Oh, those cones. She got cataract surgery shortly after that. And every time I visited, she gave me the keys and I drove her, which made me feel more confident. But sometimes we are blind spotted. And it doesn't mean that we have lost our salvation. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that sometimes we just get little blind spots. And I think it's great to know that God is so patient that he will look at our life and know exactly what we need at this point in our life. And he'll give us a scripture or he'll give us somebody coming alongside us with a good story to share or a Bible study together. And it just jumps out at us and we go, ooh. He has revealed something and now I see something so much more clearly about the way I am interacting or the way I have come across to that person. Or I need to change this and I've been clinging to it and God wants me to let go of it so he can completely do what he wants to do in my life. He still does that. And he will continue to do that in all of our lives as we continue to look into his his word. Another thing, and this is kind of a repeat from the other, this is similar to another healing that he's done. He used his own saliva as part of the methodology this time. We don't know why exactly, I don't. Some have tried to make more of that than I think is intended, and I don't think that's the main point of that. It wasn't the healing property of the saliva itself. It's because Jesus did something that turned it into a healing property, same as everything else that he did. Otherwise, we could boil it down into that kind of methodology. Perhaps it was so the man who couldn't see could feel something physically so that he would know something was going on. We talked about that in the other healing. Maybe it was, again, sort of a foreshadowing, pointing ahead to that gross intimacy on the cross to let us know that Jesus is willing to do the thing to touch us at our most gross needs. And he did that on the cross. And it was a despicable, ugly, disgusting death. And yet he was willing to do that very personally for all of our needs. And so maybe that was a foreshadowing. But the main point of the miracle wasn't the spit. The main point was how it connected with the differences in another miracle and other miracles so that we could see that this was a gradual process. And he didn't hold it against the man. Think about this, he didn't hold it against the man when he said, oh, I can only see people that look like they're sort of trees walking around. He didn't say, well, if you just had a little bit more faith. He didn't say that. He goes, okay, let's keep going on this gradual miracle of ours. And he was patient with the man until he finally saw clearly. He still worked patiently in your life and mine. And there may be some weeks that we feel like, man, I was on cloud nine last Sunday, and by Wednesday, I just feel like my faith is just waning. I just don't feel like I've got that oomph. That's okay. He knows exactly who we are and what we're dealing with, what our family situation is like. If there are things going on at work that create all kinds of anxiety and we're thinking, oh, do I have to put up with that coworker again? He's patient with us and he keeps working with us and we can still count on him to bring us through whatever it is we're walking through because I know some of us are right now. Here's some context to help us see this main point of that miracle. It connects to the lesson Jesus was teaching the disciples after that last one. remember, they only had one loaf of bread in the boat after feeding 4,000 people. And they were arguing, one job, you had one job, Peter. We only got one loaf. How could you do that? And Jesus could see that there was some leaven creeping into their lives, things that were included in their character that they still needed to have some refinement. And he goes, don't you see yet? He was asking for them, don't you have spiritual insight yet? Don't you have understanding yet? about the kind of transformation I'm talking about. It's not physical bread, boys. I'm talking about the bread of life that continues to give you nourishment daily and changes you. The word changes us. And he's saying, don't you see this stuff yet? Well, they weren't 2020 yet and probably weren't until after the resurrection. And then they would look back at all these different mile markers that he has established on their journey. And they could go, oh, that makes sense. And this makes more sense. And that leads to this miracle. And that makes more sense. Man, he really knew what he was talking about. Sometimes he does. The disciples started to see Jesus as Messiah. But they were still trying to imprint their version of what they thought Messiah should be. And it was more of a secular version, quite frankly. They were secularizing the Messiah they wanted to serve. Oh, but he's going to overthrow the government someday, we hope. Maybe he'll do this. Maybe he can do that. I mean, if he can feed all of us so easily, he's a great king. Let's make him king. And he's going, nope, I'm going to have no part of that. And he walked away from that. So he continues to say, no, I'm going to be the suffering servant. I still have to lay down my life. He's just about getting ready to do that. And we'll see how people respond to that. But Jesus knew what they needed so that their sight could eventually be fully restored. Fully. And they could see him really clearly. Some have suggested, wrongly, I might add, that in this case Jesus just finally met his match and he couldn't quite complete the healing in one go. And I would say, come on. Just come on. You've seen all the other things that he's doing. Don't you think that he would do something on purpose because he's trying to teach us a lesson? That's ridiculous. And yet, before we start casting dispersions on those skeptics that would say such a thing, you skeptics, maybe we should remember the time when we thought, "Uh uh-oh, things are going so bad in my life right now and I prayed but nothing's happening yet. Maybe he's finally met his match. Maybe I have finally found the one thing that God is not able to do right away. Have we ever gotten up to that point in our lives? I don't know. But it's easy for us to point fingers at other people for their lack of faith instead of saying, yeah, God, I realize that there are times sometimes when my circumstances completely swamp me, and I feel like Peter who's going down for the third time, and I just need you to reach down and haul me back up again because I ain't got nothing. I don't have anything, and my, even my faith is just about completely gone. I may have just a mustard seed. Unfortunately, he goes, that's enough. So who are you more like, let me ask, Stephen or William, the safari guides? Are you like Stephen, who had a clearly and uniquely developed sense for where to look and what to look for? Or are you more like William, so distracted by his own little world that he completely missed the obvious things he was supposed to be pointing out to other people? The good news is, God is still extremely patient as he develops our spiritual sight, even if it's a gradual process. Aren't we glad? Let's close with this one story to show you what happens when we develop that Christ-like sight. You may have seen this. I just found it, even though it's a little bit old now. There were two players, and these guys had fought a very difficult football game, one really trying hard to win over the other team, but after the game, they were seen praying together on the field. Here's the story. This is in 2019, this thing went viral. Two high school players revealed their priorities by kneeling in prayer after a game. Wide receiver Gage Smith had just led Sherman High School, Sherman, Texas, we have some Texans with us today, Sherman, Texas, north of Dallas, to a rousing victory over Mesquite West, another Dallas suburb. And Schlottman family, you just moved to the Dallas area, if you're watching that, hello from Michigan you're not missing anything in the way of weather, let me tell you. <laughs> but after the game, Gage knelt to pray with Mesquite's Ty Jordan, whose mother was battling cancer at the time. The two opponents had gotten to know each other really well because they had played on a select seven-on-seven squad. And on the night of the prayer, and the resulting photograph, the final score was the last thing on both these athletes' minds. When Gage Smith was asked about the prayer, he said, You know, when you're playing the game, you're playing to win, and the other team is your enemy. But afterward, you still have respect for the other opponent. Football brings people together in so many different ways, and that was just one example of it that night. What great sight! He had the right kind of sight, he was looking for the right things. Following the game, Jordan's aunt posted the photo that you're looking at right there on Facebook, and it's been shared thousands of times. And here's the deal. When we see Jesus so clearly the way he wants us to see him, it changes the way we see other people too. We stop looking at our differences. We don't see them as enemies. We don't look at all the things that would drive us into our different tribes we're looking at their greatest needs and how can we serve that need how can I pray for you how can I serve you and come into your life up close and personal to show you the kind of grace that God has shown me through Jesus Christ boy don't you think we need that right now in America I think we need it right here in our community and it can start this week and we can start looking at the right things by having the sight 2020 sight that Jesus gives all of his followers. Let's pray that he'll do that, shall we? Heavenly Father, I pray that you will continue to help us see more clearly, just as you were helping the disciples to see. And because we have this wonderful gift of hindsight and all the scriptures that were compiled for us, we've got the rest of the story at our fingertips. So for so many of us, honestly, there should be no excuse. We've got so much evidence and yet some of us, it just takes repeat after repeat explanation and more signs before we finally get it. And I pray that eventually all of us who really want to see clearly, will get to the point when we can say, I do understand it. I see clearly who you are, Jesus, and I want you to have full control over my life, every part of it. I give you every part of my life. Now you be the boss. And then I want you to help me show that same gospel to other people so that we can be disciples who are making other disciples. And I know you can do that because you've been doing it for 2,000 years. And I pray that you'll continue to do that in us. May we see you more clearly this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.